kids want to play hockey and some kids, I think, want to play 12 months out of the year and some don't. And I just think just ask yourself if you're playing in something, are you playing in it because it's fun, he's going to get better? Those are the reasons. If, if you're playing in it because you can't even answer why you're playing in it and because you're buying into this notion that somebody important is going to see your 13-year-old play in that event, as you mentioned, the big one is, is because somebody's making money at it, Okay. And you're coming with a check. So that's generally... Now, I'm not saying that that in itself is wrong. I'm not saying that, okay? But just beware of that and then make your decisions more from focused on your child and where your child is in the point of his youth hockey development. Welcome to the Midland Money Mindset. This is a podcast that's all about getting your mind right when it comes to all things money. In every episode, we go deep with engaging guests who provide tangible takeaways and a whole lot of joy along the way. I hope you enjoy these conversations as much as I enjoyed having them. Let's dive into today's show. I'm Larry Sprung, your host for the Midland Money Mindset and founder and wealth advisor of Midland Financial. Today's guest is Mike Snee the executive director of College Hockey, Inc. Mike is a talented hockey executive with experience in both amateur hockey and the NHL. He was named College Hockey, Inc.'s executive director in 2012 and guides their marketing efforts to promote NCAA Division I men's college hockey and its work to help grow the number of institutions offering the sport. Mike joined College Hockey, Inc. from Minnesota Hockey, where he spent four years as their executive director. During his tenure with Minnesota Hockey, he led the creation of a strategic plan to help ensure the long-term growth of the sport in Minnesota. Prior to joining Minnesota Hockey, Mike spent nine years with the Minnesota Sports and Entertainment, the parent company of the NHL's Minnesota Wild, where he served stints as their director of corporate sales and director of ticket sales. During this time, he worked very closely with college hockey as the XL Energy Center hosted the annual WCHA Final Five and the 2002 NCAA Frozen Four. Mike was part of one of the most successful sponsorship groups in the NHL and helped spearhead the creation and execution of Hockey Day in Minnesota in 2007, a statewide celebration of the game. He also was a key contributor to the initial ticket sales efforts for the expansion Minnesota Wild, which produced a season ticket base of 16,000. Mike is a member of the USA Hockey Board of Directors and serves on USA Hockey's Junior Council too. He's also a member of the U.S. Hockey Hall of Fame Board of Directors and is on the Board of Directors with the Minneapolis Youth Hockey Association. Listen in for some great takeaways and Mike's journey in the sport of hockey and how he is impacting the growth of college hockey as a Division I sport. Well, hello, everybody. Larry Sprung here, and I have the pleasure of being with Mike Snee, the Executive Director of College Hockey, Inc., and everybody knows I love talking about hockey. So welcome to the show, Mike. Hi, Larry. Thanks for having me today. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you here. And uh, obviously, I know who you are, but maybe some of our listeners don't. So could you give them a little bit about who you are and what College Hockey Inc. is? Yes, and, and, and most people don't know who we are. We're a behind-the-scenes organization. We're a small nonprofit funded by USA Hockey, the NHL, a few different sources, what I would call stakeholders for the sport of hockey. 
And our primary role is to provide information to young aspiring players. I would say our sweet spot's the 14 to 16-year-old age range. So we provide information to them and everybody that influences them about their kind of their hockey playing decisions, their parents, their youth coaches, the media, whoever might influence where, what they think about. And in essence, our goal is to make sure that these young aspiring players realize just how good college hockey is, how it's at an all-time high, how it's only getting better, and to ensure that they know what they need to do to remain eligible, both from an amateur standpoint and also from an academic standpoint. That's our primary purpose. In addition to that, we also want to just promote the sport and share the wonderful stories that are existing in college hockey, and then also do what we can to hopefully find other schools that don't yet have college hockey that are interested in adding college hockey and assist them in that process. Yeah, and maybe you could share a little bit about what's your background with regards to hockey and what was your path to getting to where you are today? I wish I could really excite you with uh, all sorts (laughs) of great stories about that background, but I think I'm kind of cut from the cloth that 98% of hockey-loving people are. I grew up in northern Minnesota, uh, Duluth, spent my whole life there, just absolutely loved the sport, played it as often as I could. Pretty much all outdoors, though. I I, First time I ever skated on an indoor sheet of ice was my senior year in high school. So I grew up there just loving the game, loving it. Collegiately, the university in Duluth, Minnesota, Duluth, which is successful and historic college hockey program. So that was a big thing for me to do with my friends or my family was just love that team. High school hockey is a big thing in Minnesota as well. So the high school team was a big part of what we paid attention to. And then the professional team at the time was the Minnesota North Stars. So hockey was a big part of my life growing up. Never was a big part of my life from like performing well at it. (laughs) Um, You won't really uh, Google my name. You're not going to see me connected any Stanley Cup victories or first round draft picks or anything like that. But then uh, when I graduated college, I went to the University of St. Thomas in St. Paul through a variety of reasons, probably the biggest one of which was my lack of preparing for any type of real career. When I finished college, I stumbled onto an unpaid internship with the Minnesota North Stars back in 1991. And that just set me on uh, this business career in the sport of hockey, or I should say maybe this off-ice career in the sport of hockey. Ended up working for the North Stars, the Minnesota Moose minor league hockey team, which was the team that filled the gap between the North Stars and the Minnesota Wild was fortunate enough to be an original employee of the Minnesota Wild, started with them two and a half years before they played a game and was with the Wild for a good 10 years and then left there to have a pretty cool opportunity to be with Minnesota Hockey, which is the governing body for youth and amateur hockey in the state of Minnesota. Did that for several years and then I've now been with College Hockey Inc. for going on 10 years this fall. Amazing. So you haven't been around hockey much in your life at all? Not really. really. I coach it. I still play it. I build a rink in my yard. It's definitely uh, my vocation and my avocation. And I have to say, I know you mentioned trying to find new programs for college hockey. A good friend of mine, who I I assume you know as well, she mentioned it to me, is uh, Jen O'Brien from the American Special Hockey Association. And she mentioned that, I guess, Binghamton is on that list, which is my places that you're looking to add to the programs, because that's my alma mater. That's where I went. Oh, really? You went to Binghamton? That's where I went to school. And I had the unfortunate situation that it was a D1 program when, or D3, I should say, D3 program, when I was looking to enter the school and in between me looking and getting admitted to the school and me actually starting school, the program was revoked. They removed their funding. It was when New York State went through some significant budget crunch and it was replaced with club programs. So I played club there, but she told me that 
that I guess there's been some efforts to rejuvenate the program at Binghamton for those reasons. Yeah, there is. There's a lot of work that needs to be done, but I can, I'm very impressed with the leadership there. I'm very impressed with the school. I mean, in this, you know, a lot of schools now are struggling with enrollment for a variety of reasons, and it doesn't seem that Binghamton uh, University is, and just the feel on the campus, meeting with people, it's such a positive can-do type of attitude. So yeah, there's definitely interest there. There's a lot that needs to be accomplished to make it happen, but they have, there's a facility in town. 5,000 seat arena that had been a long time home to various AHL teams. And yep. I think actually the Rangers, probably when you were there, they were the Ferraro Rangers. brothers yeah. were there. Yeah. 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 Binghamton Rangers. So I forget the exact amount of time that they've had an AHL team. It's it had been well over 30 years. And then uh, this is their first year without an American Hockey League team. Right. It's an opportunity, I think, perhaps for college hockey to fill that hockey niche in Binghamton. There you go. So listen, one of the things that we talk about is we talk a lot about youth hockey and with our guests that we've had hockey related uh, guests on. You know, what do you think as somebody who's trying to be that liaison, work with parents to help them through that track up to college hockey so they understand what do you think parents of youth hockey players need to understand most today? Great question. Maybe a bit of a loaded question, Larry, but I'd say that what we try to do, we're a research-based organization. We try to ensure that people, families, players, and their parents are making decisions based on the facts and the reality and not on the perception, their perception, because we find that their perception can be rooted in incorrect information can be heavily influenced by pressure and stress coming from other places, but certainly from social media. And what I mean by that, in essence, is young players can feel like they're behind in the process when, in fact, they're so far ahead of the process. Right. Does that make sense when I say yes. that? Okay. For me, it does, because I understand it. For some parents, they may not understand what that means, because I think we have this FOMO that we see other people and we think we have that's to right. be there, even though yeah. they're there, but that's not necessarily the case. And that's what I think you're speaking. Yeah. So the quick top line story here is the average age that a current college hockey player, the average age that that player committed to their school was 18.9. I mean, that's the average age. All right. The average age that a current college hockey player started their division one men's, I should preface that division one men's college hockey player started their career was 20.3. That's the average age. All right. But if I say that to you, if I say that there's a young player, his recruiting process started when he was 18 committed to a school when he was 19. He started there when he was uh, over 20 years old. Okay. A lot of us, we certainly used to, we've tried to stop that, but a lot of us would call that player a late bloomer when that player in essence is normal. So what's occurred to me in the time that I've done this now, and I certainly was doing it when I started it, but now it's dawned on me that we really take players like Connor McDavid or Kale McCarr, and then we base our decisions based off of these very, very unique, very rare players that do things at an accelerated rate, not because of anything they did, but just because of their natural genetic makeup and then their desire to get the most out of that genetic makeup. But suddenly then all of a sudden, if I haven't had a recruiting conversation when I'm 17, if I haven't committed when I'm 18, if I'm not there when I'm 18 or 19, then I'm behind. And then I'm branded as a late bloomer. And we want young players, we want 15-year-old players to realize, I mean, and with the new recruiting rules, they're not even recruitable yet. Right. Okay. So they're already feeling this stress and they're not even at a point yet where they can either be recruited or maybe they're not at a point yet where they can commit to a school. To answer your question in a very long way, we want to share the facts and hopefully over time here, 
that decisions begin to be made more on facts, not perception, and that their own, their feelings, like their, the way that they see things are based on facts and not perception. So that when they're 15 years old, there's more just pure enjoyment about hockey and concern for that immediate year and less concern about what college coaches are seeing me. Yeah. And I think your parents are the, you know, their role in that conversation is to make sure that they keep their player focused and not feeling that FOMO and making them understand that. And I think this is the hardest thing for parents is to understand that this is a sport that has so many different paths, right? There are a number of different ways you can end up in the same place. And if you talk to somebody who's a non-hockey person, they don't understand this at all because it doesn't follow most traditional other sports and their tracks. And let's be honest too, you shouldn't have to understand. A lot of it is head scratching. Right. It is. So that was parents, right? And their focus. What do you think is mistake or the biggest mistakes that teenage hockey players make? Besides, I guess, thinking that they need to move more quickly. That's an obvious one that we just spoke about that I think that relates to both the parents and the kids, right? To maintain their focus, even though they're not having those conversations at 15, 16 or whatever the age is. What are some mistakes that teenage hockey players make in addition to that? I think it's they're over concerned with where they're playing and less with concerned with how they're playing. So there's this constant search for a different team than the team I'm on. And in our research, as I said, we're research based. So we literally went and there was 1,690 Division One men's Division One players. And I want to make a note: we are not entirely focused on men's Division One hockey at this time, but mostly focused on men's Division One hockey when it comes to our research because men, young aspiring players face amateurism eligibility issues as early as age 14 and definitely by 15 and 16. And that's the existence of major junior hockey, also called the CHL, three leagues, Western Hockey League, Ontario Hockey League, Quebec Major Junior Hockey League. Those leagues are seen as professional by the NCAA. All right. So if a boy as young as 14 signs a contract in that league, as young as 15 plays in that league, they uh, lose their NCAA eligibility. There are not leagues like that for girls, for young women. So a 16-year-old aspiring female hockey player has her NCAA eligibility, whether or not she knows it or not. She has it. Okay. It's similar to basketball. Right. At 16, both men and women basketball players have their eligibility. Hockey's unique in that regard. Hockey's unique in many ways, but boys and men's hockey is unique in that there is this league that a lot of players play in and a lot of players are interested in that would affect your NCAA eligibility. So that's the crux of our existence is ensuring that young players at that age that have an interest in NCAA hockey know what they can and can't do to maintain that eligibility. So for your listeners that are wondering why so much research is focused on men's hockey, that's the reason why. All right. All right. So back to answering your question, I would say that there is this unnecessary concern at 14, 15, and 16 with where I'm playing as opposed to am I playing and how am I playing? Okay. So the most important thing is, are you playing? Are you on the ice? Are you getting ice time? Are you playing in important situations? And then how are you playing? as opposed to where am I playing? And especially at that age, when I try not to be what's just kind of like arrogant about it now, but I'll talk to a parent of an 11-year-old and and they're going to some summer showcase. And and I I want (laughs) to say, well, like, a showcase. Well, who do you want to be watching your kid play hockey? And I've never had a good answer. Well, right. it's just, it's teams from all over. Well, so why are you going to it? Well, it's a showcase. Who's going to watch? And then they can't answer. They're just kind of like doing it. They're mindlessly doing it. So I think I would just say to a kid, be at a place that you're playing where you're comfortable playing. And most importantly, that you're playing. You're not sitting on the bench and you're not getting limited ice. So I think there's this desire to overthink about where I'm playing and then also try to 
this notion that I, I got to play in the best league possible, which more frequently you might make that league, but now you're a lesser of a player. You're not in a leadership role. You're not getting the ice time that you want. So I think those are the two things that I would say. And then it's like, well, why is it that way? I think there's this kind of industry of youth hockey, this recruiting-based industry of youth hockey, where kids are constantly being recruited by somebody who's selling them whatever it is that they have to sell. But the intent is, you know, you're coming with a check from your parents. And so I want you to play for this academy. I want you to play for this youth team as opposed to the youth team that you're on, whatever it might be. That I would say is the biggest mistake that I see. I agree with you. I mean, yeah. Why move up a league if you're going to go from a first or second line top six down to a bottom six? It doesn't make sense. You're better off getting those more repetitions. And uh, I, I talk about this all the time with my kids growing up. They used to get a ton of invitations to spring and summer hockey. And we used to say no more often than not. I mean, I remember one year, I think I got like 12 invites for one of my boys to Lobster Fest, the same tournament. And we said no 12 times. And people are like, what do you mean? What are you doing? And I was like, listen, my kids shut down at the end of June. We're done. And they like having July and August off and then coming back rejuvenated in September. And their bodies got to repair. They got to be kids. And people thought I was crazy at times. But I think that got to be able to take a look at that and understand what's in the best interest for your kid and not what's in the best interest for the person who's asking you to play for that team or that showcase. Kids want to play hockey and some kids, I think, want to play 12 months out of the year and some don't. And I just think, just ask yourself, if you're playing in something, are you playing in it because kid wants to, fun, he's going to get better. Those are the reasons. If if you're playing in it because you can't even answer why you're playing in it, (laughs) you know, and because you're buying into this notion that somebody important is going to see your 13-year-old play in that event, as you mentioned, the big one is, is because somebody's making money at it okay? Sure. and you're coming with a check. So that's generally, now I'm not saying that that in itself is wrong. I'm not saying that, okay, but just beware of that and then make your decisions more from focused on your child and where your child is in the point of his youth hockey development. Agreed. We talked about this a little bit. Why is the path to professional ice hockey and even college, why is it so different than other sports? For our listeners, because I don't think they really have an understanding of why it diverges so much from other sports. So when I venture into answering that question, still more in the theories and like, well, I think this, okay, I don't know if I can sit here and, and prove it all, but there's a variety of reasons. And the first one is to note that for the most part, our sport is rooted in a Canadian culture. One time, Canada dominated hockey. Outside of a few pockets in the U.S., mainly Minnesota and Massachusetts, there wasn't a lot of hockey in the U.S. being played. And then Michigan's really grown. New York's really grown over the past 50, 60 years. But now other places are really growing, literally the entire country. The foundation of it was a Canadian model, okay? And the scholastic athletic model in the U.S., not just hockey, but football, basketball, volleyball, that is a very uniquely U.S. thing. This idea that you're playing high school athletics and then you're playing college athletics, and then that's where the best athletes play, okay? That's a very U.S. thing. But because football is a U.S. thing, basketball is a U.S. thing, volleyball is a U.S. thing, those sports evolved in that scholastic athletic model. Hockey evolved significantly in this kind of junior hockey type of model, right? Okay. Right. Now in Minnesota, it very much evolved in a high school model. And in Massachusetts, it very much evolved in a high school, a little more prep school type of model. Okay. But then you had these two kind of, as the sports have grown and then as the world has shrunk and there's crossover, you have this blending of these two models that were never created to fit together. 
They weren't created like, well, we've got to blend in junior hockey and high school hockey and junior hockey and college hockey and so on. But they've been blended together. Okay. And I think what you see is in youth hockey, you have moments where you can be doing one thing or the other. Okay. You can be playing pro or you can be still be playing college or you can still be playing junior or you can go to high school and then what do you do after that whether you're in prep school or whether you're in high school you can go right to college or you can go play some more college eligible junior hockey or you can go play college ineligible junior hockey it started with just that piece is that you had these two development models that were never never like designed to be together and then number two I think our sport, when you compare it to basketball, football, baseball, because in most places in the U.S., it's played in privatized facilities, privatized ice arenas, and it's done in a privatized manner, that there's a heavy business aspect to it, okay? And when I talk to people who aren't convinced that their kid can reach his full potential playing college hockey, and those people are fewer and fewer by the year, but you still will encounter somebody generally from Canada that just can't grasp this collegiate model and can't believe that my son can be reaching his full potential and still be a full-time college student. Or I even talk to people who don't believe that a kid, let's say I'm from Minnesota, that that you can public high school hockey and be serious about your hockey. And then I said, well, I remind them, well, Minnesota has far more NHL players than any other state and almost all of them played high school hockey. But anyway, you'll encounter people that just can't grasp that. And then I'll start to, you know, where was Tom Brady playing when he was 18? Where was Tom Brady playing when he was 20? Where was Steph Curry playing when he was 18? Where was he playing when he was 20? Okay. So this idea that playing fewer games and practicing more and this idea that being a full-time student, and we don't question it in football or basketball, but for whatever reason, we question hockey. And then because in football and basketball, they play on generally municipally owned fields or school owned gymnasiums, there's far less for-profit influence in other sports. Now it's growing in those other sports, but it's nowhere near at the level it's at at hockey. And in some places in our country, it's never been a community thing. It's always been a for-profit thing from the start. So you have these entities out there recruiting customers, okay, and doing whatever they have to do to recruit a customer. And so suddenly you see for-profit academies, for-profit youth teams, youth coaches making a lot of money, and there's just so much money involved in the sport. So therefore, that has led to this very hard-to-grasp my head is spinning. I'm getting <laughs> calls from all these different people that have all the answers. Okay. And then you compare that to football. And if you're a football and wherever you live, you play football for your park and then you play football for mm-hmm. your high school and then you play football for your college. And it's very streamlined. And you don't sit there and question, where am I going to play football next year? Right. You just don't. Right. Yeah, I think that's a good point. It's really these two entities that started out and then they kind of merged. So that makes sense. And there's no way to kind of unwind that. So it's just a matter of letting people know what those couple of paths are so they understand that there's more than one. So talking about path, one of the things that we talk about, and this is something that you at College Hockey uh, and why you're there is, what is there a best path for a player to be noticed by NCAA coaches? Is there a best path for them? Yeah, the path that allows that player to play his best. I mean, that seems like a bit of a snarky answer, but you have to play well. You can't explain a way not playing well, okay? What we have, I think, come across is, I I just brought up football. Okay, well, the football path is pretty much the same for everybody, whether you're from Florida or Montana, right? And you'll see that although tons of players come from Florida and Texas and stuff, players come from everywhere. They really do. So it is less about where you play. In hockey, I think that the, the areas 
are different. It's not like football. A young hockey player in Boston, in Los Angeles, in Dallas, in Northern Minnesota has very different experiences based on where they grow up, who they want to play for, how it is, how it happens. Okay. So I would say I would err on the side of playing wherever you live for as long as you can. And it does frustrate me as someone, not necessarily in my job, but more so in my just passion for the sport and wanting as many kids to play it as possible and wanting them to play it for as long as possible, is that there is this belief that you have to send your kid away from home in certain areas. And that belief is that that age is getting younger and younger. Okay. And not to pick on any certain areas, but one area that I'm very intrigued about is California, especially Southern California, because they have such critical mass of players now. They have ranks. It'd be great if they had more, but they have ranks. Clearly there's players. The sport is I don't even want to call it an emerging area. They're there. You know, they've right. arrived. They've got from Gretzky arriving and then on ice success for all of their teams. And kids want to play hockey and facilities have been built and great hockey players are coming from there. But there's becoming more and more, it feels like to me, with their best players, this feeling that we need to leave here. We can't stay here when we're 16. We And it's getting down to 15 and 14 years of age. And I don't think that they're alone in that. Our research shows that Again, it is so much more about the player and less about the place that play for your team in in Los Angeles, in Anaheim, until you're 18 years old. And I feel like I'm having a hard time explaining that. Is it safe to say that if you're a good player, because obviously you said at the very beginning of this, right, you still have to be a good player when all is said and done, right? So if you're a good player, what I'm hearing is it really doesn't matter where you play, you're going to get found by somebody who's going to have an interest in you. It may not be at 15. It may be at 18. But if you stick with it and you stay the course, even if it's locally where your perception may be that they don't have the tools for you, you're still going to get found at some point by that NCAA coach. Am, Am I hearing that right? Absolutely. You make a great point there. It might be less likely that you're the known kid at 14 if you're not playing for the program that's playing at all these different showcases and events. Okay. But that doesn't matter if you can live with not being an internet sensation. Right. Right. Okay. But it's widely enough known that if you're, maybe there'll be a skeptic. Maybe if you're ripping it up on some 18U team in a place that's not as widely known for hockey, that somebody might say, well, you're ripping it up because of your schedule or whatever, but you'll have an opportunity to prove yourself that you're legit. You can hang in a different situation. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so our model requires for most players that they're in certain parts of the country requires that they're going to leave home. But I think that we are accepting players leaving home younger and younger every year. And we don't question it. And a big fear that I have as I think about the sport as a whole, it's not my kid involved, is I like to talk to families whose kids play sports, but they don't play hockey. And I'll ask them, you know, why didn't you get your kids involved in hockey? And these are families that have resources and means, and they absolutely could get their kids involved in hockey if they wanted. And a constant answer I hear, and I'm kind of paraphrasing, is because it looks nuts to me. Because I work with somebody whose kid plays hockey, and they use all their vacation time to go to a different city every other weekend following their kid around to play hockey. Or I work with somebody, my sister's family plays hockey and their kid left home at 14 to go live with a different family in the Detroit area or something like that. the, The longer I do this, the more I'm like, we're not going to realize the full growth of the sport in our country if we continue to have it be 
played in that manner. And I don't know if it can change. I think you said it earlier that it is what it is. We can't unwind it. But I at least want to stress to a family who doesn't want to participate in that type of madness that you're not going to limit your child exposure or opportunity. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 So let's shift for a minute because, you know, again, your goal is to have people understand the NCAA route, right? Where can, and I think this will be a short answer, but where can players and their families find information, valid information about the NCAA rules? What's the best place for them to go for that? Well, there would be the NCAA website for sure, but also our website where we try to or uh, translate it so that it's maybe a little easier to read. So collegehockeyinc.com, we're a nonprofit, we're a free service, we never charge anything. We believe our website has a lot of very helpful information. We have an FAQ there that we're constantly updating. So I would say start with our website. We're also very open to any type of one-on-one communication. So if you want to contact us, there's three of us that work for the organization. We're constantly having individual meetings that we schedule with families just to make sure that they have the academic aspects. But I'd say usually the questions that we get are more the amateur side of it. So the family that's either their child has just been drafted into one of the major junior leagues, they have an opportunity to explore opportunities in major junior hockey, which we're all for. We understand that's an option and that families want to look into that. So we want to make sure that they're aware of what they can do when they're exploring different options and and what they can't do. Yeah. So maybe you could also explain to our listeners, some may know, some may not, what inherently is the difference between a verbal commitment and a national letter of intent. I know they're very different. I know that. But can you share that with our listeners? Absolutely. And that's a distinction that needs to be known. So a verbal commitment is simply uh, exactly that. It's just a verbal, I will come, we want you to come to our school and I will go to your school. Right. And at one time, up until May of 2019, that could occur literally at any time. Okay. And was getting younger and younger. And credit to, I think, the leadership of college hockey, our coaches, our administrators, our commissioners, that they felt that was getting too young. It was commitments and recruiting conversations were occurring at too young of an age. So in May of 2019, they put in some, they instituted created and instituted some and changed some new recruiting rules. The crux of which is recruiting cannot begin until January 1st of your sophomore year. And verbal commitments could no longer occur until August 1st, headed into your junior year, delayed the the date of a verbal commitment. But that's just a verbal commitment. That again is just a school saying, we'd love you to come here. And the the student athlete saying, I'm going to go there. Okay. And essentially both parties could walk away at any time. There's no no binding commitment on either party. That's correct. Yep. Exactly. That binding commitment occurs when the National Letter of Intent, which you referred to as the NLI, is first signed. The earliest that can be signed is November of your senior year. That's the earliest it can be signed. That doesn't mean that's when it's always signed, but that is the earliest it can be signed. Think of that as the contract. So once an NLI is signed, then there's commitment, a legal commitment by both the student athlete and the school. Right. Thank you for sharing that, because I think that's an important distinction for people to know. And I believe, I may be incorrect in this, I believe hockey followed a similar path in changing those rules to what I believe lacrosse started. They kind of started this change in the recruiting rules and hockey kind of took a hard look at it and more or less followed suit in a, in a similar way for similar reasons. Yeah. In the, in the beginning of when I think the college hockey leadership got together and said, we need to address this, which was around 20- 2017, 
and the cross was, you know, it had already started that process, like you right. said. So, yeah. So I don't want to uh, just point the finger at our sport and hockey and say it was a hockey issue. It certainly isn't just a hockey issue in terms of the what was the very young recruiting and the young committing. And hopefully we're right there with lacrosse, creating an environment that's more appropriate for these young players. Agreed. Now, I noticed something interesting in your auto signature, in your emails. It had a stat and it said 93% of men who play college hockey will earn a degree. Now, I know you are very steadfast on that and you have very specific feelings towards that. Why do you think that is so important to know and understand as both a player and a parent, right? It's yeah, really yeah. proud as heck of it. Proud of our student athletes and, and our schools and and just how many of them graduate. For most schools, that's higher than the general student population. But I think it's also important because I don't think that that's what a lot of people think it is. So if somebody didn't know that, if you hadn't seen my email signature, you hadn't attended a presentation that we gave, and I said, what percentage of of Division I men's college hockey players do you think are in their degree? Would you have said 93%? Probably not that high. Probably not that high. Yeah. Probably not that high. And I think that that is the majority of people. I want to say, actually, I know it's the majority of people because I will ask people that that don't yet know it. And uh, I've never had somebody say 93% that it's that high. So that's part of our wanting to ensure that people's perception, your perception is in line with the reality of it and that, that it's that, that high. So our hockey players, as wonderful as our story is on the ice right now, more college hockey players moving on to the NHL than ever before and so on. It doesn't stop there. It's just as good when they're students, when they're in the classroom and how their graduation rate is. You know, full credit to them first, to the student athletes. I mean, they're doing the work. Some aspects like, well, why is it so high? You know, our schools go out of their way with all of their student athletes, not just their hockey players, but with all their student athletes, making resources available so that they can thrive in the classroom as well as thrive as as hockey players or whatever their sport might be. I do also think the structure of hockey, for good and for bad, the delayed entry time that I said earlier that the average age that a player starts his college hockey career is is over 20 years of age. Well, generally that time before that is spent playing college eligible junior hockey USHL, North American leagues, some different leagues in Canada. And most of those young men, when they're doing that, they're part-time college students at that time, taking a course or two online and make progress towards their degree. I would imagine that has something to do with it as well as that they come in already with some of their courses completed. But it's, it's an important part of our story. And I mean, if I'm a player, right, or if I'm a parent trying to consider this route for my child and try to help them navigate it, what is your sense of why that statistic is so important, meaning Mm -hmm. that I can send my child and I have 93% plus chance that they're going to get a degree? Why is that degree so important? Our audience, it's a wide audience, but as I said earlier, our sweet spot's that 14 to 16-year-old audience, and and we target who we go out of the way to get in front of. And generally, I would say when we're talking with a 14 or 15-year-old, their career is still on a very upward steep trajectory. Okay, They're the best player on whatever team they're on now, and, and everything's looking really good, and that's great. We have the benefit, first of all, we're not emotionally attached to it, and secondly, we have the benefit of the research that there's still only 700 and some spots on NHL rosters on any given January 10th of any given year, right? And some of those spots are going to be taken by guys like Kale McCarr and Kyle Connor and Jake Gensel. I mean, players like that, they're going to have a spot for 10 to 15, maybe even longer. So there's not many spots. So there's a lot more really good 14-year-olds than there are going to be 
NHL roster spots for them when they're 24 years old. And there's nothing that we can do about that. I mean, I guess the NHL can continue to expand, (laughs) but but, I mean, that's probably limited. As much as we want to encourage them to continue just taking hockey as far as they can, I mean, and we will encourage that and they should do that. They absolutely should do that, is that we want them to not sell their education short and also not think that by being a full-time student that they're shortchanging their hockey development. We want them to see this as an and, as an and proposition, not an or proposition. You can get your degree or make significant progress towards your degree and be a fully committed hockey player. And all that goes with that degree, it's not just the graduation rate, it's the experience of being in a university setting that whether or not you're a student athlete, you get. I mean, sometimes you have to stretch your comfort zone. You might be put into a study group where nobody else is a hockey player. They don't even care that you're a hockey player, you know, and you have to begin to have this identity of not just always being in that comfort zone with your teammates. And then we know, we just know the outcome. Some of you are going to make it. Some of you are going to go on to have very a lucrative professional careers, but most of you aren't. Right. You know, we don't know which ones are and which ones aren't, but most of you aren't just because it's a numbers game. And it doesn't matter whether you play college hockey, whether you play major junior hockey, whether you're playing some developmental hockey in Europe, that's not what matters. What matters is there's still just 700 and some NHL spots. Okay. And even if you do make it, your career is likely not to be long just because the statistics prove that. Some will have very long careers, but most won't. And it's also not to suggest that a degree guarantees success. Right. Okay. But I think that we can be pretty confident saying that if you go to college, you get that degree, you learn whatever subject it is you major, you learn intensively in that, but you also broaden your self-perspective of who you are, develop the confidence that goes with being a student. Okay. You give yourself more options and you do better prepare yourself. You don't guarantee, but you do better prepare yourself for success, both in hockey and outside of hockey. And chances are at some point or another, you're probably going to have to rely and utilize that degree somewhere along the way in some other career outside of or within the hockey world, just not necessarily on the ice per se. Correct. Yeah. I mean, most guys are done. Even the guys that have the long, illustrious thousand games plus careers that you think about are generally done in their 30s. Right. Right. And it's hard getting a 15 year old to realize that when you're 38, you still have more of your life to live than less of your life. And a lot of runway. Yeah, exactly. A lot of runway. So there have been a lot of changes recently with regard to name, image, and likeness. Uh, Nil, right? How does that affect or how has that been affecting things with regard to college hockey? And what are things that student athletes need to know about that not to potentially run aground? Or is it pretty much all open territory at this point? Wow, that's a topic for its own podcast. I think you're seeing a lot more media coverage of name, image, and likeness in football for sure, and maybe a little bit in basketball. In hockey, it's something that's there now. It's again, it's not a hockey specific, it's right. an NCAA athletic specific. It now allows student athletes to make money off of their name, their image, and their likeness, which can be something as subtle as I can now have a summer camp. I can be a college hockey player. And when I go back home to wherever I'm from, I can host a camp and put on a good experience for these kids, use my name, attach my name to it, and I can make a few extra dollars. I I think what gets covered is the rumors of the 
Pitt wide receiver going out to USC and getting a guaranteed three and a half million dollars. I don't know if that exactly how it's happening, but that's what's being talked about in the media. I don't see that quite happening often, especially in, in hockey, but there will be opportunities for these student athletes now to make money that they hadn't been making before. One thing I do want to make sure that people realize though, because I don't think some people do, is that this is not a paycheck that they're receiving from the college. So they're not becoming paid employees. They're just now able to make money in ways that they hadn't been before. Because before, if you had had that summer camp and made some money off of it, or if you had been in a local ad for an auto dealership, that would have made you professional, but in the eyes of the NCAA. Right. So it eliminated that. I I think it's a relatively new territory that's going to develop and probably expand as time goes on. But other than those top echelon athletes who can cash in immediately off their name, image, and likeness, I think it's going to take a little while for other athletes to really understand what and how they can do that. And if they can do it, I don't know that, I don't know that having that summer camp is going to be a hugely successful economic proposition for them. It might be helpful to their situation, but I don't know that it's going to allow them retire or stop working any earlier, right? Mm-hmm. That's, that's the challenge. Yeah. So Right now, everything that you read is speculation. Nobody really knows right. what it's going to look like. And, and when we're asked about it, it doesn't change or really impact what are the essence of why we think college hockey is so special. It's the student athlete experience and it's the opportunity to develop as a hockey player and give yourself an opportunity to reach your full potential as a hockey player while having a pretty unique, amazing hockey experience. And now if you can put a few bucks in your pocket in a different way that student athletes prior to you couldn't, that's a great thing. But that doesn't change the dynamic of why you should do it or why you shouldn't do it. Right. I guess one thing I read too is that it's another way that students that are savvy with social media and can become influencers. I think that that will be when this becomes down all of our learning curves about what name, image, and likeness is going to be and what it's going to look like. It will be yet another example of how powerful social media is because I think those that are pretty savvy with social media will be ones that will be more valuable as name, image, and likeness student athletes. Yeah, I agree with you on that. Now, I I just want to pivot for a moment. I just want to spend a few minutes here on scholarships. Can you give our listeners and parents, hockey players, an idea of what scholarships are available? Where are they available and how that process works? Sure. Just Just at a high level. Yeah. So in men's and women's hockey, both of them, think of it as a salary cap, I guess. That's that's a bit of an easy way for somebody who's new to this topic to grasp it. There's 18 scholarships that a school is limited to. They can break those up into percentages and they can award them how they see fit. So generally, a roster is going to be, let's say, between 25 and 28 student-athletes playing hockey. Those 26 Student-athletes will divide up 18 scholarships. Some will be on full scholarships, which covers everything, room, board, so on. And others might be on a 90% scholarship or an 80% scholarship. And that's, um, I don't want to make it too difficult. That's essentially what it is. And it just has to add up to 18 scholarships. I like the salary cap analogy. I think that's very good. And then you can figure it out from there. And now, is that at both the D1 and D3 level, just so people understand? 
Yeah, well, thanks for bringing that up. Sometimes I assume things sometimes, and I gotta can't do that. One thing is Division three does not have athletic scholarships, and that's right. a big distinction between Division one athletics and Division three athletics. Division three athletics is wonderful; it's great competitive experience and everything that goes with it. But there's not athletic scholarships now. Most of these schools have vibrant academic scholarships available and need based financial aid available. So I do encourage young players that maybe have sticker shock when they look at what tuition is that most people aren't paying the rack rate of tuition at whatever school they're going to. And so even if they're not on athletic scholarship, there is other, what I would call plentiful aid available. And then especially plentiful if you're very good academically. Agreed. My son's playing ACHA Division One, and they found merit money for him through a presidential scholarship, which was very, very helpful. I get it. So listen, Mike, this has been very, very eye-opening and very, very informative. And I know our listeners are going to get a lot out of this, a lot of tangible takeaways. This is the Midland Money Mindset. So I'd be remiss if we didn't ask you the same question we ask all of our guests. Last question, which is, what did you do today? that brought you joy and put you in the right mindset for success. It's a beautiful morning here. This is we're, we're talking here in May and which is a wonderful month and went for a little walk around the block. The sun was up already, I guess, and the <laughs> air was cool but fresh. So just that little 4 minutes really got me invigorated. How about that? Pretty amazing. Simple. Sounds amazing. I can only imagine. I'm sure my son might have did the same thing this morning just on Shattuck's campus, but here it's a little hot, a little humid in New York, which is a little not normal here in May, but it is what it is. So listen, we're going to have all your information, Mike, in the show notes. If people want to find you, connect to you, learn more about College Hockey Inc., what is the best and easiest way for them to do that? So our website, which is collegehockeyinc.com, and the ink is I-N-C, not I-N-K, collegehockeyinc.com. We are active on social media. It feels like Twitter is where we're the most productive. So if you're on Twitter, we're at College Hockey is our Twitter feed. But we also encourage, we love old-fashioned phone calls and, and now one-on-one Zoom meetings as well and even emails. So contact us. Please reach out to us. Our, you can send an email to info at collegehockeyinc.com as well if you'd prefer to do that. Great. Thank you so much, Mike. I know I saw our presentation. It, it was very informative, very helpful for us and in our sons, our kids journey down this path. So I appreciate you. And I encourage anybody who has a son or daughter playing hockey that they check out your site because I think there's a lot of information in there. Some they may know, some they may not know because they heard it somewhere else and it wasn't accurate. So go to the source, learn about it from the source and the accurate information. And that's most important. So thank you, Mike, and make it a great day. Thanks, Larry. Appreciate the opportunity to visit today. I want to thank Mike Snee for being a guest on the Midland Money Mindset. Mike has taken his passion for the game and is using it to make an impact on collegiate hockey players everywhere. Hockey has a unique path that can take many routes to get the player where they want to be. Mike is focused on providing collegiate hockey players with a path that will allow them to obtain a degree and continue their hockey careers at a level that can lead them to the next phase of their careers. Mike and College Hockey Inc. can be found across all social media platforms and all the contact information needed to find them can be found in the show notes. Thank you for joining us this week on the Midland Money Mindset. Make sure you visit our website at midlandmoneymindset.com and smash the subscribe button so you don't miss a show. We encourage you to help others find our valuable content and please don't keep us a secret. You can also schedule an Is There a Fit call right from our website 
or by using the link that you'll find in the description section of your podcast player or app. And be sure to join us for our next episode to learn more about getting your mind right when it comes to all things money. The opinions voiced in the Midland Money Mindset Show with Lawrence Sprung are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and may not be invested into directly. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. No strategy ensures success or protects against loss. To determine what may be appropriate for you, consult with your attorney, accountant, financial or tax advisor prior to investing. Investment advisory services offered through CWM LLC, an SEC registered investment advisor. Guests on the Midland Money Mindset Show are not affiliated with CWM LLC.